Well, all right, if you've got a Bible with you, Romans 7 is where we are picking it up this morning. Um, for me, as I think back in kind of my childhood, my teenage years, and really my adolescence as a whole, um, one of the things that is clear to me is that the thing that really kind of shaped me, the thing that kind of shaped my identity and the person I grew into, the person I was, and then the person I became was punk rock music. I know that kind of sounds weird that that would be the thing that like shaped and formed so much of my identity, but, but that really was such a foundational thing in my life. And when I say that, that, that punk rock music shaped the direction of my life, it really did. Um, because as I think back, um, it was when I bought my first MXPX CD. There's like two of you who know who that even is, but that's okay. It was when I bought my, bought my first MXPX CD, that's when I decided I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. And if I never had started playing the guitar, I never would have met my wife, Christy, and we wouldn't have our four amazing kids. And if I never met her, I probably wouldn't be up here doing this today. And if I was still up here doing this today, if I didn't have her, then this church would not be where we are at today. Because let's be honest, I'm the one up here, but she's really the one running the show around here, right? Like, those of you who know us know that that's just the reality, and that's how it is. Yes, okay, yeah, amen. And so it really was, punk rock music was really such a foundational thing in my life. And so um, back around seventh grade, when I really kind of dove in and started to get into it, um, one of kind of the things you had to do when you got into that community, when you wanted to get into punk rock music, was you kind of had to go back and you had to learn the history and listen to kind of the forefathers, all the OGs of punk rock music who came before your time. So, you know, that, that was bands like the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. And when you go back and you listen to these bands, one of the things that you pick up on very quickly is that sort of the, the foundation of punk music is this sense of angst, right? It's this kind of sense of anti-establishment, this sense of rebellion, this sense of pushing back against the power that is in charge and in control, and I think one of the, the best examples of that in punk music is the Sex Pistols song, God Save the Queen. Now, the, the Sex Pistols, they were um, a British punk band in the 70s, and they wrote this song. It, it was basically like a, there, there's no other way to put it, so I'll just say bluntly, it was basically a middle finger to the monarchy of Britain on behalf of the working class of England. Um, this song was released in 1977. It was the year of the Silver Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth, which meant that was the year of her 25th anniversary of her reign. And so this is what the song says. This is just the first core, or the first verse of the song. They say, God save the queen, the fascist regime. So it starts off like, you know, pretty much throwing punches, right? God save the queen, the fascist regime. They made you a moron, potential H-bomb. God save the queen. She ain't no human being. There's no future in England's dreaming. So you can imagine when this song came out on the 25th anniversary of Elizabeth's reign. Like, it was pretty controversial. And you can imagine kind of how, how the crown sort of took this song. Because if you've been reading the news this past couple weeks, right, you've seen the stuff about um, is it Prince Harry and Meghan, how they've said they kind of want to step away from all that, that, that they kind of want to um, have their own lives and they want to kind of have financial independence and make their own living and be their own people, which is a great, amazing, like noble thing to do. I think we all read that and be like, man, that's really cool. That's awesome. We applaud that. But then if the reports are correct, you read in the news and you read that like the queen's not too cool with all that. Like behind closed doors, like the queen is picked because she views that as an affront to the monarchy. And if something like that kind of sets her off, again, you can imagine how this song coming out would have set them off. 
Well, what's even cooler and just kind of even more rock and roll about the whole thing was um, the day of her actual 25th anniversary as queen, the day of the anniversary, the band, they rented a boat aptly named the Queen Elizabeth. They found a boat called the Queen Elizabeth. They rented it, and their plan was to take it out on the river that's across from Westminster Palace where the celebration was going to be taking place, and they were going to be playing the song during the celebration. But before that could happen, this fight broke out on the uh, docks. Um, the authorities ordered that all the boats be docked for the day, and they weren't able to do it, which is kind of a big coincidence, and it's pretty clear, like, you know, the government was behind the scenes pulling the strings, saying, hey, don't let this happen, but, like, that's pretty rock and roll, that's pretty awesome, right? That, that's kind of the foundation of punk rock music, that sense of rebellion and, and pushing back against authority and those in control. But um, around that same time, um, there was another punk band called The Clash. You know, many of you probably know The Clash, especially if you're um, the generation older from me. And, and The Clash were probably even more foundational to punk music than The Sex Pistols were. And The Clash, they kind of um, had that same sort of political spin to their lyrics, where a lot of their lyrics were about, you know, pushing back against authority, rebelling against those in control. But it's really interesting because The Clash, they ended up covering a song that got really, really popular. And in this song, they're talking about that attitude of rebellion and that attitude of anti-establishment and pushing back against authority. But in the song, they, they approach it from the perspective of kind of like, hey, yeah, let's push back. That's, that's all bad, but it usually doesn't go well for us, right? It's this much more realistic picture of what happens when we push back against authority and those and control. And the song is called, I Fought the Law. And if you know it, the tag is, I Fought the Law, and the, the law won. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, that's not near as rock and roll as God saved the queen and her fascist regime, right? Like, that doesn't sound as cool and rebellious and anti-authority as that, but in a way, it's much more realistic, isn't it? Like, it's much more lined up with the way that the world actually operates. Because we picked up on this, right? Whenever we try to push back and fight against the law and say, this is unjust, this is not right, the law usually wins, right? The law usually comes out on top. Like, we see this every time we get pulled over, and it's like, no matter how good of an excuse we have for speeding, it's like, well, if that officer, if he or she wants to write the ticket, they're writing the ticket, Right? It doesn't matter how good our excuse is. If they want to write that ticket, they are writing the ticket, and the law wins every single time. The Clash were right. When we fight the law, the law always wins. Now, in Romans chapter 7, that's basically going to be the crux of Paul's argument. That's basically going to be the kind of foundation of where Paul goes in Romans chapter 7, that, that when we fight the law, the law wins every time. So he's going to do this kind of deep dive into the, the law, in other words, into the, the commands of God that are founded in the Old Testament. And the reason Paul's going to kind of do a deep dive into the law of God is because, you'll remember, so far all throughout the book of Romans, Paul has built this case that, hey, the law can't save you. The law doesn't bring you salvation. It's not by adhering to the law that we are saved and forgiven and made right with God. It's only by grace through faith in Jesus that we are made right with God. So after he's built that case for really kind of six whole chapters, he knows that there's going to be people in his audience who grew up Jewish, who grew up loving the law and valuing the law and seeking to follow the law with everything in them. And he knows that they're going to kind of push back and say, well, so, so Paul, are you saying the law is useless? Are you saying the law is no good? Are you saying the law serves no purpose at all? 
And so in response to the questions that he kind of sees them having, he's going to do this deep dive into kind of really unpacking what the law is, how it functions, what it does, and what its purpose is in our lives. So Romans chapter 7, picking it up in verse 1. We'll just read through uh, the whole passages through verse 13, and then we'll spend a few minutes kind of walking through it and unpacking it. Paul says, now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know <clears throat> that the law applies only when a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is still alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. Which honestly, the first time I read through this, when I got to verse 4 and he said, here's the point, I was so happy. Because I read through verses 1 through 3, I'm like, what's the point, Paul? Like, what in the world are you talking about? And, and, and he knows, he's being a little confusing. So he's like, all right, here, here's the point. He says, you died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. And as a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we've been raised from the, or now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting was wrong if the law had said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all sorts of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life, and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death indeed. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me, and it used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy. And its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which was good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So pretty basic, right to the point, right? We all get it. We can pray and go home and it makes sense, right? No, okay, yeah. It, really confusing, right? Like there's a lot of of strange language and a lot of weird stuff in there. And again, like if you're like me, the first time you're reading through that, it's just like goes right over your head and you're glazed over. So let's try to kind of make some sense of it and unpack what Paul's saying this morning. Um, I think the first point that Paul wants to communicate to us here in this passage is that at birth, all of us are under the power of the law, right? At birth, we are all under the power of the law. Basically, like the clash said, we can fight the law, but the law is going to win. That at birth, the law has this power, it has this hold on us. Look back at verse 6. He says, but now we've been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captives to its power. So Paul says there that when Christ saved us by grace through faith in Him, when Christ saved us, we were released from the power of the law. So if when Christ saved us, we're released from the power of the law, Paul is implying, right, that before Christ saved us, we are captive to the power of the law. Before Christ saved us, law the law of God has this power over us. Again, we can push back against it. 
We can fight against it. We can try to escape it. But the law wins every time. It's got this power. Basically, what Paul means there is that we are accountable to the law. That God's law is the standard that every single one of us are accountable for keeping or breaking. Right? That, that apart from faith in Christ, apart from faith in Christ and His death and resurrection redeeming us and washing our sin and making us right with God, apart from that, every single one of us are judged based on how well we do or do not keep God's law. And that's a standard that none of us can live up to. None of us do a good job of keeping God's law. None of us can meet that standard. So Paul says it has this power over us. Now, real quick, when we talk about God's law, I know that that's like very vague. Um, you know, that, that, that's not very clear. And especially as we get into the Old Testament where the law is given, we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commands and it can be really confusing. It's like, well, really, what's the basis? What's the crux? Like, what's like the Cliff Notes version of God's law? And the good news is Jesus actually told us. In Matthew 22, Jesus is out one day, and this guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what is the most important commandment? This guy's basically saying, Jesus, like all the commands, all the laws of God in the Old Testament, they're super confusing. I can't remember them all. I can't follow them all. So like, is there like a couple that are the most important that if I just follow them, then I'll be good? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, well... The most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, all of the other commands, in other words, all of the law of God are built upon these two commands. That's what Jesus says, the entire law is built on those two simple commands, love God and love others. So when Paul says that the law has this power over us, in other words, that we are accountable to the law, we are going to be judged apart from Christ based on how well we did or did not keep the law. It's really those two simple things. How well we love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and how well we love people as ourselves. Now, again, here's why Paul says that the law has power, that it's a burden over us. Because none of us have lived up to that standard, have we? Right? Like, let's unpack it. Uh, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Right? So basically, never have a moment in your life where there are any affections in your heart that come before God. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your mind. So, so never have any thoughts or attitudes or ideas in your mind that would contradict the will of God or what He desires for your life. And love the Lord your God with all your soul. Basically, that word means your entire essence, the entire being of who you are. So, so all of your life, every aspect of your life is singularly focused and directed on glorifying God in everything. So that's all it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Easy, right? Right? And then secondly, like if that's not enough, love your neighbor as yourself. And the bad news with that one is later Jesus said, hey, your neighbor is basically everybody. Right? Jesus said, if they're a human being, they're your neighbor. That's who you're supposed to love as yourself. So if they're your friend, it's your neighbor. If they're your enemy, it's your neighbor. If they're a frenemy, they're your neighbor. If it's somebody who votes differently than you, they're your neighbor. 
Those are all the people you're supposed to love as yourself. Everyone from your own kid, your own flesh and blood, to the person at work that you despise and hate the sound of their voice with everything in you. Right? Those and everything in between, that's who you are to love like yourself. That's who you are to always treat like you want to be treated. So again, that's the standard that we're held to. Right? Apart from Christ, that's how we are going to be judged. How well we did or did not do that. Love God with everything in us and love our neighbor as ourselves. And again, that's why Paul says that the law has this power over us. That it's powerful over us. That, that, that it holds us captive. That it's this burden because we can't keep that standard. Right? Like, let's just be honest. Most of us have already broken that standard just this morning, right? Right? We're only two hours into the day, and most of us have already broken that, haven't we? If we were to be judged by that standard, most of us would not come out on top already just for today. It's this impossible standard that we have no shot of keeping. So, so that's what the law is. It has this power over us. But then what Paul does is Paul then shifts the question to then, so then what's the purpose of the law? Like, if we don't even have a chance, if we don't even have a shot to, to measure up, to keep that standard, to achieve that standard, why does God even give the law? And he answers that clearly in verse 7. He says, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. Paul tells us that the reason God gave the law was to show our sin to us. The purpose of the law is to reveal to us our sin and to reveal to us our need for Jesus. The, the law, think of it this way, it essentially functions like a mirror into the depths of our heart. Right? So you ladies, um, you, you know how you have, um, I, I think they're called vanity mirrors, right? You, you have like those mirrors and they've got those like super, super, super bright lights like to do your makeup and stuff. And when you look into those mirrors, because of how bright the lights are, you see like every single detail on your face, right? Like you see everything that, it's not a flaw, you're perfect, you're beautiful, whatever, right? But you see everything that you would consider a flaw, you see everything that you don't like about yourself, and for you guys, you don't know what I'm talking about, but you go to the mall and you go in the department stores and you know the big makeup booths, you know, there's those mirrors with those bright lights there. Um, I remember one time I walked by and like I looked in one of those mirrors and it was shocking, right? It was like, oh my gosh, I, like I'm even uglier than I thought I was. Like those mirrors, they're scary, right? Because like they don't hide anything. They hold nothing back. They are completely honest about every detail and flaw that's honest. It opens up expo and it exposes every detail on our faces. That's how the law functions for our heart. That's why God gave the law, because it, it opens up our heart. It, it exposes, it shows every single detail, every single flaw in our heart. It reveals the real us to ourselves. So Paul says that's the purpose of the law. That's why God made it. That's why he created it. That's why he gave it to us. But then Paul argues as we read that passage that Really, the usefulness of the law stops there. That the law basically stops being helpful at that point. That after that point, all sorts of problems arise because of the law. Not actually because of the law, but because of how sin twists our hearts to operate with the law. So he goes on, we'll read it again the rest of verse 7. 
He says, I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. So again, you know, he's saying that the, the law is what reveals that sin to us. And then verse 8, he says, but sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. Right? You see what Paul's saying, right? He, he, he's saying that, hey, we are given this command not to covet, and God giving that command shows our sinfulness. But it's kind of like this double-edged sword because God gives the command, God gives the law, and in God's command, he says, hey, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. And Paul says, because of the sin in our hearts, when we hear God say, don't covet your neighbor's stuff, what we then do is say, why don't I need to covet my neighbor's stuff? Oh man, like, what does my neighbor have that I shouldn't be coveting? Well, if I'm not supposed to covet my neighbor's stuff, my neighbor must have some pretty cool stuff, right? And it's like, I need my neighbor's stuff. I don't think I can be satisfied anymore in my relationship with God alone. I need what my neighbor has, right? That's what the heart does. Or if I got a little gift bag and I brought it, and I set it up here and I said, hey guys, this isn't for any of you. Like, there's something really fascinating in here, but it's not for any of you. Um, so, you know, please don't come up after the service and ask about it. Please don't ask what's in it. And please, 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 whatever you do, don't look in the bag. Right? If I did that, what are you going to do? Everything inside of you is going to want nothing more than to come and look inside the bag after the service, Right? That's just how the human heart is. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what the law does to our heart. We, we see the law, it reveals our sin to us, but then it's like this awful cycle where it just makes things worse and it just entices us to sin even more. So Paul says that's the first problem with the law. But he says the second, the, the even bigger problem with the law is that while the law reveals our sin, the law can't actually deal with our sin. Right? It reveals it to us, but it can't actually do anything about the problem. Remember, the point of the law is only to reveal our sin. So go back to that example with a mirror and the light. Right? If, you look in, in, if you look into one of those mirrors and you see all the things that you want to look different about yourself, you can stare into that mirror for days on end, but nothing's going to change, is it? You can keep staring and keep staring and keep staring, but that power or that mirror has no power to change the way you look. It has no power to transform the way you look. Its only intention, the reason it was created, was to reveal yourself to you. And again, it's the same with the law. The law doesn't have power to transform. The law doesn't have the power to change us. It was only there to reveal our need for change, our need for Jesus. Because remember, what was Jesus' summary of the law? Love God and love people. That's how Jesus summarizes the entire law of God. But think about that when Jesus boils it down. Love God, love others. That has to do with the heart, right? It's about love. That's, that's a heart issue. Jesus says the crux of the law isn't actions and activities and something on the outside. He's saying the crux of the law is about what's on the inside. And so the problem with the law is that trying to keep the law can never change our hearts. Right? Obeying the law can't do anything about what's inside of our hearts. 
If we try and we work and we strive really hard to keep all the commands and obey the law, like that can, that can change some of our external actions, can't it? We can work really hard and we can change and some of our external actions can change, but, but trying to do all that never changes the motivations in our heart behind the actions, does it? Right? We can change the outside, but the motivations on the inside, we can't change by following rules. And it, Jesus says it's the inside, it's the heart that's the real problem. So I think Paul's showing us here that, that relying on the law to change, relying on the law to be made new, that's basically like trying to change ourselves from the outside in. Again, it's this idea of, okay, if I do these things, if I follow these commands, then my heart will change. But Paul's making the case here that instead of that, we need God to change us to transform us from the inside out. Right? We need our old hearts to die, and we need the Spirit of God to give us a brand new heart. That's Paul's answer to this whole thing. That's Paul's solution. Right? The way it works, according to Paul here, is that, again, you and I, we are accountable to the law. Right? We have this burden to keep the law, but it's this burden that we could never meet. We could never live up to it. But the law was given to show us how sinful we really are. But, but the problem is the law can't do anything to deal with our sin. And so that's Paul's whole point in verses 4 through 6. His whole point there in verses 4 through 6 is that we can't deal with the law, that, that the law doesn't do anything about our sin. So Jesus was the one who dealt with our sin. Jesus was the one who perfectly kept the law when you and I could not. He was the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. And so this is what Paul said in verse 4 about that. He says, so you died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. Paul says, when we are united with Christ by faith in his death and resurrection, we die to the power of the law. Right? He's saying, we at that point are no longer accountable to the law. Right? When Christ died, he died the death that our breaking of the law deserved. And then verse 6, he tells us what happens as a result of that. He says, so now we've been released from the power of the law. We died and are no longer captive of his power. So now we can serve God. Right? He says, it's only once the power of the law has been broken, only once Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf and we then die to the requirements of the law. He said, it's only now then that we can serve God. Not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. So what he's saying is, so with Christ we died. Right? In Christ, our old heart stopped beating. That when, when Jesus saved us, we died to our old self. The old self is dead. The old man or woman is dead. But then what Christ did is He raised us to new life to be living within His Spirit. In other words, when we were saved, we were given a new heart that's not bound to the law. Instead, this new heart is led and controlled by the very Spirit of God Himself. See, back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before all this, um, there was a prophet named Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And God spoke to the people of Israel through Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, um, Ezekiel writes that what God says is that God says, one day I will give you a new heart. And when I give you a new heart, I will put a new spirit in you. And God said, I, I will take out your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. 
Or another way to translate that is, I will take out your, your stubborn, unresponsive heart and give you a responsive heart toward me. That's what Paul is talking about here. That, that, that Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. He kept the law to love God and love people. He kept that law perfectly where you and I never could do it. And so only through faith in Him, we die to the requirements of the law, and God gives us a new heart that is then controlled by His Spirit, and that new heart that we receive that is controlled by His Spirit, that then enables us to be able to go out and actually be able to love God and love people like we are commanded to do. See, when you and I are accountable to the law, we can't keep it. It's just a burden. We're never going to measure up. And we're not going to have the ability in us to love God fully and to love people like we love ourselves. But Paul says, but, but when Jesus does this work, when you die to yourself and are brought to new life in Christ, God gives you a new heart. And that new heart is empowered by the Spirit. It's led by the Spirit. It's controlled by the Spirit. And then you're able to love God and love people. See, what's the relationship here between being a Christian and living in obedience to the law? Being a Christian and living in obedience to the commands of God. What's the relationship here? Because there absolutely is one. We have to be careful that we don't get it backwards. Because Paul's saying here that, that Christianity is not, I obey, then God will make me new. Right? That that's not the order of events that Paul has just laid out. It's not, I will obey, I will keep the law, I will keep the commands, and then God will make me new. Instead, what Paul has said is, God, through Jesus, makes me new. He makes me new. He redeems me. He restores me. He gives me a new heart. And only when God makes me new then I have the desire to obey. Then I want to obey. Then through being led by the Spirit, I actually have the ability to be empowered to obey. Through faith in Jesus, God has taken our old heart, which was rebellious, which didn't desire God and His ways and His plans. It desired sin and self. Through faith in Jesus, God has taken that old heart and given us a new heart that desires Him and obedience, and that new heart is empowered by the very Spirit of God Himself. And I'm going to pray in just a minute, and we're going to close, but um, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, maybe leaving off on a little bit of a cliffhanger here, and that's just how the chapter kind of breaks in half. Because if you're like me, like, like you read all that that Paul just said, it's like, okay, like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm born into, the, you know, I'm under the power of, of the law, I can't meet that standard. The law just reveals my sin to me. But Jesus fulfilled the law. And so with his death, I can die to the law. I can be made new. I can be made right with God. I receive a new heart that then desires God. And, and this new heart is empowered. It's led by the Spirit to follow and obey God. I get all that. But, Paul, but if I've died to the power of the law, and if God has given me a new heart, and if this new heart is supposed to desire God, and if this new heart is supposed to be led by the Spirit of God, why the heck do I still struggle so much? Right? Anybody else feel that tension? I mean, I hope I'm not the only one. Right? It's like, okay, if I've got this new heart, 
If I'm supposed to have all these new desires, if now I'm supposed to be controlled and led by the Spirit, like, why is temptation still so difficult? Why is life still so hard? Why do I still struggle with sin all the time? Paul's going to begin to answer that in the next half of the chapter. So let me encourage you, and again, I'm not trying to like do a commercial and just like say, hey, come back next week, but we just don't have the time to do the whole chapter today because you guys would get tired and hungry and bail out and leave early on me. But that's where Paul goes next week. So let me encourage you, don't miss next week. It's incredibly, incredibly important. Let me pray for us. 